this time as we continue in worship, would you grab your Bibles and open them to 2 Timothy? Some of you are scratching your heads and going, what? Because we've been in uh, 1 Corinthians for quite some time. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, the way you looked at me last week, because I was wearing you out, no, that's not true at all. Um, uh, you know, this being the Sunday before what we call, you know, Reformation Day, which is October 31st, is a part of church history. And uh, I wanted to take a Sunday and just talk about why that's so significant, why it's so important. And, you know, if, if sometimes we have this idea that, well, that's happened in the past, and, you know, regardless how you think about history, um, it is church history. And if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a part of His church right? And so it's part of your history. And I think it's also very important that we, we talk about these events, and I'm, I'm specifically referring to uh, the moment when uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the, uh, the church door in Wittenberg, Germany back in 1517. Um, if you're not familiar with that, we'll walk you through it, all right? I'll give you the, the crash course, the, the Tyson crash course version of this. Uh, there was, you know, in Germany, there was uh, just there was unrest. There was a time of, of, of people being very frustrated and upset with, with the church, the Catholic Church as a whole at that time, because there was not a, that was the only church. And Catholic simply meant universal, and there was one, one church. Yet there was uh, a heavy tax and burdens laid upon the people for uh, building their cathedrals, and they were pressed to give more money, and you could purchase indulgences. And uh, there's even a story of of uh, the, the need for money was so great that um, they offered for indulgences for future sins, right? So if you came and said, you know, priest, I, I, here's my, my money for my sins in the past, but I have this, I have this sin I'm going to do in the future. Can I pay for that? Uh, to which the priest said, sure. And unbeknownst to the priest, the sin was to rob the priest, right? So he would, this actually happened. He gave money. Right? That was a sin, so I'm absolved from my sin. I gave him my money, then I stole from the priest and took all the money. Right? So that's kind of the, the environment. And we have this idea that in the Reformation, you have this, this bulwark of an individual who was Martin Luther, who was quite a robust and, and uh, rhetorical individual, or not rhetorical, um, uh, very strong in rhetoric. Sorry, wrong word there. Uh, he came on the scene, and he was, he was um, you know, if you, if you read anything about Martin Luther, you have to say he was kind of rude at times. Right? He was very kind of straight-in-your-face kind of individual. And it's this moment in, in church history where he has concerns of what's happening in the church, and he has 95 issues. And he, he, the way they would go about, you know, we, we, it sounds like he's quite a rebel, right? He's nailing stuff to the church door, right? Doesn't that sound like he's just a pure rebel? Well, this was the mode of debate in their day. So if you wanted to debate something with the church leaders, you would go to the church door and, and nail your your questions or your thesis and then nail it. And this is exactly what he, what he did. What's interesting is he wrote them all in Latin, all right? He was a very learned individual. Uh, he, his father saved up a lot of money, and, and he was going to law school and uh, was very educated. He knew, clearly, he translated the Bible into German, so he knew Greek and uh, Hebrew, and he knew Latin, and he knew a little bit of Aramaic, of course, to translate the Bible, and, uh, and of course, German, his own speech. So he's a really intelligent individual. Um, but there was, in his cart, there was one day that he was going to school, I believe, and 
lightning hit close to him. I've never ever been in a lightning storm. A lightning hit close to him. He took that as a sign to go and become a monk. God, if, you, if, you live, if I live through this, I'll go into the monastery. So he does that. And it's in this, in this context where he's, he's struggling with the law of God. And, 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 you know, R.C. Sproul in his, in his study on the holiness of God points this out that, you know, when it was asked at this time in Luther's life, he said, do you love, you know, if you love Luther, do you love God? And he said, no, I don't love God. I hate him. Think on that for a moment, right? And what does he mean by that? Being a, having a lawyer in mind, he realized as you read the law, God has said, I have to, here's the law. I can't meet this. That was his biggest problem. And he struggled with this, right? Here's God's law. He's in the monastery. I can't fulfill it. And it was said that he would go to confession for hours on end. I mean, this is every day, right? Every day he would go to confession. It was three to four to five, six hours. The priest hated to see him coming, right? Because he was so conflicted because he studied the Bible and says, I, I can't. And when he would go and he would confess for hours on end, he would feel good. And then if he went back to his, his room and he, if he forgot something, he said his soul was distraught the rest of the night. So he was really conflicted. And it's not until he's reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where he, he works this idea of, a, of what he called an alien righteousness. That's what we just sung about. That's what we've just taken communion about. He reads in this and he realizes there is a righteousness apart from the law that has come. It's not my own. I cannot earn it, which he knew. So he's beginning to see what, what we would call the gospel for what it is. Christ, the atoning sacrifice. And so he has these concerns, right? He has 95 of them. He's seeing these problems in the church. Now, if you're seeing problems in the church, please don't go nail anything to our door. Okay, send an email, that'll be sufficient, right? He has these 95 theses, he goes and he writes them in Latin. So there's no, even though he was, a, you know, we have this picture of him, he was a quite a, 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 you know, a strong individual. He, he wrote them in Latin. His, his whole heart was to debate these concerns. 95 of them he saw struggling with the church was not right. Somebody we don't know in church history took those 95 theses down, translated them into German and circulated them. And so what Martin Luther meant for debate, God meant for what we call the Reformation. This was the, the spark of the Reformation. It's part of church history. And I say all that to say because sometimes we look at this and we, we kind of we go, well, that was then and these were these, these guys. You know, out of this Reformation came the guys like Martin Luther and, and John Calvin was in uh, Geneva and there was John Knox in Scotland and Erwig uh, Zwing. All these reformers, they came and what were they discovering? And we have this tendency to think they, were, they created their own stuff. They created their own doctrines. They actually were just rediscovering, if you will, the gospel. Paul had been teaching on this from the very beginning. It's not until they came and they see a righteousness apart from the law. You've got to realize that at this moment when, when they were making this stand and saying, you know what, it is Christ alone. He is the one who saves only Jesus can save you. And it's how do we miss this when Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's wondering, like, how, do we, how, did we, how did this get so missed over the years? And it was their life. You realize this stand for them to come back to the gospel and say, no, it's Christ alone who saves us. 
This morning, you and I, we celebrate, we just acknowledge, we remember, it's Christ alone that saves us. And for these gentlemen in this time, they, they, meant they had to go into exile, they had to go into hiding, they wanted to kill them. Martin Luther was asked, right, it's a famous saying in, in the, uh, uh, I believe it was the Canons of Dort, or, or I'm sure the, the Synod of Worms where he was at, and they asked him, you know, do you recant, recant of this? And he took 24 hours to think about it. And he came back and he said, without sound reason, my conscience is, is persuaded by the Scripture. Outside of the Scriptures, I, I cannot recant. And see, for them, it was life and death. You know, John Calvin was exiled. John Knox was kicked out of Scotland. And people don't want the gospel. They don't want it, even within the context of the church. And so we see the importance of church history. And what was it that they rediscovered? What are, what are the things that we grab hold to? And so there's five things that, that uh, maybe you've heard this before. Uh, the, the solas of the Reformation, the five solas. Solas is a Latin word that just means alone, right? That's the extent of my Latin right there, pretty much. Um, you know, I read a lot of theology, and, and I have, I've, I've, I've kind of come to this place where there are snooty theologians and non-snooty theologians. <laughs> and what do I mean by that, right? Well, there are, are clearly these highly educated gentlemen. They, they come to these moments and they're writing and, they're, and then they just kind of break out the Latin to prove their point. And the snooty guys will write a few sentences in Latin and then did not translate it. It's just here. Go learn Latin. Come back and figure out what I'm saying, right? That's the snooty guys. I'm like, that's just snooty, Right? <laughs> And the other non-snooty guys, well, they'll use Latin as well, but then they'll, they'll put in parentheses, for you, for you guys who don't know Latin, here's what I'm saying, right? But, you know, anyway. Uh, come to these simple Latin words, and it's simply what it means. Uh, I'm going to offer a prayer here, and then we'll look at this, and the first passage we'll come to after my first point is in, is in 2 Timothy, so hold your, hold your place there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for this time which we can assemble together and talk about this defining moment in church history um, lord they didn't they didn't create anything new they just really discovered and rediscovered the gospel it's not found in in works it's not found in indulgences it's not found in anything that we could produce it is something that is only found in christ what christ can do so we thank you for that truth we thank you for this moment in church history i pray that we would glean lord what uh um, what these, these gentlemen have done and what's, what your word says. More importantly, uh, these all have to be rooted in your word. And so I pray that you would instruct us today. And, you, and Lord, as always, get me out of the way that every thought and I would be fixed upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, we look at these five, the, the five classic, and you'll probably hear this, you've come across it, the, the alone statements or the sola statements of the Reformation. Uh, and, it's, and it's important because we use this word, and, and oftentimes we, we suffer from equivocation, right? And that's, a, that's another fancy word for you to think, actually know something, right? It just simply means we, we use the same words, but we define them differently. And so when, when I talk about the, the Reformation and reforming, uh, my, my position, just so you know, is to come back to what does the Bible say? I've said that oftentimes. What does Scripture say? And that's where our heart needs to be. And this is really the first uh, foundation. It's the first point in your outline. It is Scripture alone is our only foundation. It was sola scriptura. That was one of their uh, championing marks. That's the, the Latin. I mean, that does make me sound pretty intelligent. I throw that Latin in there like I'm 
sola scriptura. I'll change the tone of my voice when I say it too, maybe. I, but scripture alone was their only foundation, right? This is not something that was new to, to Martin Luther at this time. Uh, you know, before him, John Wycliffe and John Huss uh, were gentlemen who were translating scriptures and, and getting it into the common language. They, were, they had this, uh, this call that, that only scripture, all right, or show me from the scriptures and I will recant. If they went into debates and someone said, I just don't, I think you're wrong. Well, they would say, show me. Show me in the Bible and I will change. That was their heartbeat. And this was years before the Reformation. So it's not something they created here. Again, they're coming back and rediscovering the importance of the Bible. They've grabbed this and, and championed it. They simplified it, if you will. And by saying, you know, show me in Scripture, they just said sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Right? And this is a break. This is one of, of the problems that, that Martin Luther was working through. He's looking at the Bible, he's reading it, and he's saying, this is saying this, but yet the organized church at that day was saying something different. He says there's a problem. And so he writes his problem in, in, a Latin, right, in Latin, nails it to the door for debate. But his conclusion through all of this, right, even at that moment where they're saying, recant, and he knows after this moment when he says, I can't, he has to go into hiding. This was life or death. And he's simply coming down. His decision isn't like, you know what, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a strong individual and I'm going to just tell you how it is. That's farthest from the truth. He realized this puts him uh, on a road, a trajectory, right, to the gallows of some sort. And so he takes time to understand this and he says, you know what, no, I am bound by what Scripture says. This is what it teaches. It is Christ alone. So they championed uh, this truth. Again, we can go back further from uh, Huss and, and Wycliffe and go straight to what did Paul tell the young Timothy, right? Going into the ministry. He looks, listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy. This is the passage you sure your Bible should be open to. Chapter 3, 10 through 17. Some of this will be familiar. Beginning in verse 10, he says, But you, speaking to Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, what persecutions I endured. Right out of the gate, right, he's telling Timothy, you have followed this closely. Continuing on, he says, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You could probably say, yeah, that's bared itself out, hasn't it? It says in verse 13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, right, Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. <clears throat> Paul was saying this from the very foundation, wasn't he? Come back and look at what the Bible teaches. It is everything you need. It speaks to us in a broad sense. Right? How we understand end times, 
right? How we understand the church. And we can throw a bunch of big words with that. Ecclesiology or eschatology. It explains all these things, doesn't it? It explains how the church is to function. Scripture speaks to all this. It speaks to parents, right? It speaks to children. Then it speaks very specifically, doesn't it? That you and I are as sinners. And outside of knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know what's ahead of us. The gospel first brings, right, as, as Walter, or, uh, Walter Martin, <laughs> wrong historian there, all right, <clears throat> uh, Martin Luther, it first brings that frustration. I realize there's something I cannot do, and that's exactly what the Word of God is supposed to do. The law is supposed to bring you to this place where you realize, I can't. It's the question the disciples posed to Jesus. Who then can be saved? Right? Blown away. Rich men aren't saved. We thought because they're rich, they're blessed, they're guaranteed heaven. Who then can be saved, Jesus? These things are impossible for man, is his response. All things are possible with God. God provides the way, God provides salvation. It speaks in a broad sense, it speaks specifically to us. This is the Word of God. Peter understands it this way, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture or any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You can have confidence in the Bible. Peter says it's, it's from God. Paul says, look, Timothy, understand this. Everything you need is found right here in the Reformation. What are they rediscovering? Scripture alone is what you need. This is where we find Christ. It's so important. You know, I was reading a book um, this last week. I finished it up called The Creedal Imperative, written by Carl Truman. And he talks about the importance of confessions and creeds and doctrinal statements. Why are they so important? Well, one, it matures us, right? The Bible is not meant to be read as a systematic theology because it has what? It has history, it has poem, and has poetry. It has narrative, right? It has metaphor. All of that is just contained in the Bible. But a confession or a doctrinal statement summarizes what we believe. And he says that's important. It matures us, but it also protects us from leadership leading away. We can look at this and say, no, 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 no. This is not what we hold to. It protects the church from leaders who say, you know what? We're going to teach something crazy here. I'm not going to call it crazy, but it's going to be outside of this. And the church can say, no. This is why it protects the church. Today, I see this as so vital because we look at what's happening in our, in our day and age. How is it that churches once who held strong to core doctrines of the faith are now saying, you know what, those aren't important anymore. At some point in time, they've, they've lacked, they've moved away from Scripture. And the, and the Reformation is this moment of saying, this is vital. Without this, you have nothing else. You don't know who God is because God reveals himself in his word. So we see this as one of the foundation solas. The second one that they uh, rediscovered for us is Christ alone, right? As our only mediator. Sola Christos. And that does, that sounds, just kind of rolls out there. It's really good. Right? Christ alone. <clears throat> Here they spoke of there is nothing else, right? You can't earn this. They came back to the understanding and they debated this heavily in this moment in church history where they realized there is no work on this planet you can do. See, they worked through what the Bible taught and they said, you know what, there's only two families. You're born in Adam. You're born in sin. 
And they said as if, as if Adam ate the fruit, just as we know from Genesis, he said, if, if you're born, right, of course we're living, you were born as though who, one who ate the fruit. When Adam ate, you ate. So how are you going to overcome that sin? You can't. You don't start from a clean slate. That's what they were communicating. Only Christ can do this. There has to be, as, as he, uh, Luther said, an alien righteousness apart from the law. God provides it. And again, again, Paul echoes these words. And so the Reformation was coming back and finding out who this Jesus is. It's not found in Christ plus anything. Remember in Galatians where Paul says, look, if you think it's Christ plus circumcision, you don't even have Christ. That's his response. And if you're going to try to earn it, you've got to do all of it. You've got to become perfect. Have you ever sinned in your life? Have you ever told a lie? You ever punched your sibling in anger, right? You ever stole something? You ever had a lustful thought? Okay, well, there you go. There's no chance for you to ever be perfect. It takes another's righteousness, Christ. See, this is, this is something maybe you've heard. You're saying, yeah, this is, I get it. It's, this is, man, this is the heart of the gospel. I found this uh, from Michael Horton out of one of his letters. Listen to what kind of is going on in, in today's world. He says, today, once more, this affirmation, talking about Christ alone, He said this affirmation is in trouble. According to the University of Virginia sociologist James Hunter, 35% of evangelical seminarians, those studying to go into ministry, deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary. According to George Barna, that's the same figure for conservative evangelical Protestants in America. God will save, is the quote, God will save all good people when they die, regardless of whether they've trusted in Christ, which they all agreed. Now, if you know something of Scripture, you would say Jesus didn't believe that, right? Paul didn't believe that either. He goes on in this article, and he says, 85% of American adults believe that they will stand before God to be judged. They believed in hell but only 11% think they might go there. It says in his article, R.C. Sproul observed that to the, to the degree that people think they are good enough to pass divine inspection and are obvious, uh, oblivious excuse me, to the holiness of God, to that extent they will not see Christ as necessary. He's simply saying, look, if we compare ourselves to each other, I'm pretty good. Chances are good for me. Right? What's not happening is God's standard, which is perfection. And when I take my life and stack it next to perfection, it is miserably failing. Right? That's what he's saying is not happening. He goes on in his article and he says, That is why over one-fourth of the born-again, as that in quotes, evangelical surveyed, agreed with this statement that one would think might raise red flags even for those who might agree with the same thing more subtly put. And here's the quotes. If a person is good or does enough good things for others during life, they will earn a place in heaven. That's widely communicated. And the reformers are saying that's not what's going on. They're rediscovering that only Christ can fulfill this. He says, furthermore, when asked whether they agree with the following statement, maybe you can think of yourself where you're at on this, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and all other pray to the same God, even though they use different names for God. 
Two-thirds of evangelicals didn't find that objectionable. Barner observes how little difference there is between the response of those who regularly attend church services and those who are unchurched. One respondent, an independent fundamentalist, said what is important in their case is that they have conformed to the law of God as they know it in their hearts. That should expose the fact that we can't make it. It's the very struggle that is absent. <clears throat> A little bit further, I think this is an important part of his article. He says, but this culture influence, this cultural influence towards relativism, is not only apparent in the, in the masses, it is self-consciously asserted by some of evangelicals' own teachers. Clark Pennock states, The Bible does not teach that one must confess the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. The issue God cares about is the direction of the heart, not the content of their theology. That's just so you know, completely opposite of the Bible. Theology means the understanding of God. It's very important. And uh, Michael Horton says, for those of us who have some inkling of the direction of their hearts, he says, see Jeremiah 17, 9, which says the heart is desperately wicked beyond searching out. And he concludes and he says, to say sola Christus, Christ alone, does not mean that we do not need, or excuse me, do not believe in the Father or the Spirit, but it does insist that Christ is the only incarnate self-revelation of God and Redeemer of humanity. The Holy Spirit does not draw attention to Himself, but leads us to Christ, and then we find peace with God. It's amazing. This is what's going on. You see the, the turmoil and the struggle, and quite quickly you can say, well, if you come out and say, no, it's Christ alone, can you not see that there would be opposition, even in those who would say they are evangelical? This is what the rediscovery is. This is why Scripture is so important. This is why we should come back and say, who is Christ? What has Christ done? Who is God? What is the character of God? What does the Bible say about you and me? What does it say about man? Right? Many of us, the closer we get to, to God's holiness, should be having this understanding like Isaiah in chapter 6. I am undone, or like John on the island of Patmos. I fall as though dead when I come close to God. Or Habakkuk who says, you know, when I... When I pray, my sin enters my bones. So we've forgotten who God is. He does not change. You can change the vocabulary all you want. His standard is still perfection. And if you're trying to reach that outside of Christ, there's no hope for you. That's what they're rediscovering. That's what they're trying to teach. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages. Augustus Topley, he wrote this. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Right, it means no rest. Could my zeal, never rest my zeal. Could my tears forever, forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Only Christ can do this. Paul says in Galatians, this needs to be the heartbeat of, of every Christian. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness, right, here it is, comes through the law, any effort, work, merit, then Christ died in vain. Paul is saying what John has said in his first letter. 
But you say you don't need Christ. You say you don't have sin. You make God to be what? A liar. God thinks you need Christ. That's why he sent him. Don't ever get outside of that. He's more than an example. He's more than a martyr. He's more than a psychotherapist. He's everything we need. He's Christ alone. They rediscovered this truth. We, right, profess this truth today. So it goes on. This is the next, the third one, is grace alone is our only method, right? Grace alone. This is the solo gratia. There's your Latin again, right? Simply coming back to Scripture, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God extends this grace to us. Grace, right, brings us to Christ. It exposes. It's amazing. There's, there's nothing we could add to this. That's why we use the word amazing, right? That's why we sing amazing grace. And to the sinner, to those who are, are downtrodden, those who are broken, isn't grace, God, mercy on me doesn't that sound so good to us too often we play the role of the i think of luke 18 of the pharisee and the tax collector too often we walk in this life going lord thank you that i'm not like that guy in reality you and i should be beating our chest saying lord thank you for having mercy on me thank you for having mercy on me and jesus tells his disciples right he went home justified couldn't even raise his eyes. Couldn't even look to the temple. So wrought with sin, and yet, God, mercy. We see something of God's character. Definitely, as Jesus is saying, desire to give it. It's found in Christ. It's God's grace. You know, the struggle we have today is who's, who's befitting of this? There's two examples. You know, if we were to come and say there was a thief, right? If we think of a thief, and, and he stole from hardworking people. On some occasions, he hurt his victims or even killed them. But he shrugs it off and continues his life of crime. Finally, he is apprehended and convicted. And on death row, he hears that God will forgive all his sins in Christ alone. Even though he does not deserve it and cannot make up for what he has done, at first he can't believe it. It sounds too good to be true. But then he does believe. He trusts in Christ to save him from eternal judgment. He dies He spends eternity with God. Some of us might say that's unfair. Take the other side of it. Let's say there's a person who's very religious. He prays several times a day. He fasts twice a week. He gives 10% of his income to charitable causes. He doesn't swindle people out out of money. He treats others fairly. He has been faithful in his marriage. He thinks that doing all these things will commend himself to God, but he dies and he goes to hell. And once again, we would cry, that's unfair. Both these stories are taken from Scripture. One, we see the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me. And Jesus promises him, that's grace. And going back to Luke 18 of the tax collector and the sinner. Look what I've done. I'm earning it. This goes right back to the Reformation and saying you cannot earn this. You can't earn it. We come back to the scriptures. We see that it's Christ alone. And we understand God's grace. God's grace, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. Since this, we're talking about Martin Luther, I have a quote here. It says, Although out of pure grace, God does not impute our sins to us. 
He nonetheless did not want to do this until complete and ample uh, satisfaction of his law and his righteousness, righteousness has been made. Since this was impossible for us, God ordained for us in our place one who took upon himself all the punishment we deserve. He fulfilled the law for us. He averted the judgment of God from us and appeased God's wrath. Grace, therefore, cost us nothing, but it cost another much to get it for us. Grace was purchased with an incalculable, infinite treasure, the Son of God Himself. Today, do not forsake the God's grace in your life, what He has done in the gospel. We would say, yeah, maybe today we go, yeah, I understand this. But, but think about it in our own society in this day when Martin Luther and, and the other reformers are, are saying they're championing this. And no, it's, it's God's grace that does it. You can't earn it. There's Christ alone. Think of, the, of, our, of our society that says, you know what, we don't, we don't necessarily need. We don't need Jesus. Well, clearly we don't need his grace. It's not what the Bible teaches. And the grace alone is always attached, and you saw it in Scripture already, to faith. And this is the fourth point. This is one, another discovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This was the defining moment, right? Faith alone is our only means. We should never get tired of this doctrine. And of course, Martin Luther said, this is where the church stands or falls. This is where you make it or not because of all the implications from this doctrine. He made it a core principle. Justification is the declaration of God based on the work of Christ alone. It's the forensic word, right? Justification. How do we receive this? We believe in Christ. Believe on Christ. We trust in him. We cast our life, all our dependency, everything upon Jesus. And in faith, believe that he uh, saves us, restores us, redeems us. Gracious faith lays hold of Christ. We could say the doctrine like this, justification is the act of God by which he declares us, you and I, sinners, to be righteous because of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Martin Luther, once again, I have another quote here. It says, faith lays hold of Christ and grasps him as a present possession, just as a ring holds the jewel. Hold on to Christ. This is a very important question. I would ask you in your own private devotion, your own thought, where are you? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Do you have faith in Christ alone? Do you understand the grace that God has given you? Or are you trusting in something else? Often I've made that joke. In Bible college, we've, we joke with, with Gabe and said, you know, if, if, if you get to heaven before me and I find out about it, you're my Achilles heel. Right? You let Gabe in, you have to let me in. Right? That was always our joke. God doesn't operate that way. And being Bible students, we knew that. That's why we teased each other. But at least I hope we knew that, right? We understand that God God's, he demands perfection. And if you're placing your faith in something else, or yeah, I have Christ, but a work, Paul would respond to you and say, you don't even have Christ. It's that important. Now we understand why the church was going to, to track them down and kill them. Burn them at the stake. Many of, of the early reformers, those who uh, translated the Bible, William Tyndale, a lot of these hostiles, these guys all died brutal deaths. Because they said the scriptures, this is where we find Jesus. 
we learn about God's grace and His mercy and how we come to know Him. It's not a work, it's faith. And the last cry of the Reformation is my last point here. The glory of God alone is our only motivation. This is, you often hear this at Christmas time, soli deo gloria. I will hear that in Christmas carols. That's the Latin again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God's glory is seen in the beauty of His perfections, the awesome radiance, radiance, there you go, uh, that breaks forth from those perfections. And our response to Him should be praise. He is worthy. You know, oftentimes we'll hear this, we'll come to these moments of, of church history and we'll go, well, they're debating over these doctrines. These doctrines are sterile. They weren't sterile for Paul, right? They became worship for Paul. And the more he dug into scriptures, he's writing uh, Romans chapter 10, as he's talking about uh, the work that God is doing and then going into 11 and, and how, uh, you know, by faith you're saved and, and preach the word, right? And it comes to chapter 11, he talks about how Gentiles are being grafted in. Right? How do you get saved? And he's just overwhelmed by this moment and this idea of, of doctrine. Right? It seems sterile, but for, for Paul, doctrine immediately goes to praise. It goes straight to worship. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 and 36, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. See, Paul's digging into the, the, the scripture, to doctrine, and communicating it. it, leads him straight to praise and worship. I would say to you this morning if you're struggling with worship, maybe you haven't pressed into the idea of just how magnificent and mighty God is and how that we can know him in Christ, what he has done to realize my sin problem. Yeah, he nailed that to a cross. Think about that for a moment. Let that change the way you respond and say, Lord, thank you. I am a Gentile that Paul is talking about that got grafted into this. I respond and go, Lord, you saved me. On my own, I could, there's no way I could do this. And Paul simply says, look, it's of him. It's of God. It's through him. It's to him. He has done it all. Past, present, and future. Isn't that what we just celebrated in communion? There's a moment in the past that has bearing on this present moment today. It has bearing on our future, not just in this life, but eternally. And if that doesn't change the way you sing out and worship God, well, then there's something wrong. You need to come back and say, look, look what he's done. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He has a name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is who he is. And yet, this Savior is the one who will get trampled. That's how he loves. When we understand the gospel and he's called your name, He saved your soul. How can I not lift my voice and worship this wonderful, powerful, loving God? See, the Reformers understood this. They come to this and they say, it's all about His glory. It's all about God redeeming. It's all about Him by His grace and through faith in Christ, this mediator. We have to rediscover who Jesus is. They didn't create these doctrines that came from the Reformation. They rediscovered them. Paul had been saying them all along. 
And the Spirit opened Martin Luther's eyes. What do you mean there's a righteousness? That's an alien righteousness. Can you imagine the burden? Can you imagine going and confessing for six hours? Can you imagine sitting that long? Confessing. And then coming and realizing God has taken care of it. The burden being rolled away. I encourage you this morning, there's other passages of Scripture. John, in his Gospel, John 1, 3, all things are made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. God is all of it through him, right? Colossians 1, 17, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Everything, speaking of Christ, to him, right? Psalms 135, 5 and 6, for I know that the Lord is great, and the Lord is above all gods. Whoever the Lord pleases, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in sea and all the deep places. God does not have to save us. He doesn't owe you or me anything. Because God is love and it was necessary for Christ to pay for that atoning sacrifice, because he loves you, he sends his son. That's what was rediscovered. The moment of reformation. That's why these are so important. 